This is an ABC podcast. Culture moves fast, so it's time to stop everything. Hello, I'm Benjamin Law. Hi, I'm Beverly Wang, and in this episode, we are featuring three hilarious and thought-provoking women who are shaking up the status quo and offering up some laughs with a lesson. Steph Tisdale's an award-winning comedian and proud Yerinji woman who believes in comedy's power to address inequity and injustice. At uni, Steph studied journalism and law before deciding her path lay elsewhere. And she's not afraid to acknowledge when she has tried and failed with her message. Sarah Mashman and I spoke to Steph Tisdale about her rise through Australia's comedy ranks. But I was curious to hear more about her first foray on the stand-up comedy stage. I had dropped out of uni and had a little meltdown and went, you know what, the way that I'm going to deal with this as a 19 or 20-year-old is backpack with no plans and just deal with it. The movie Yes Man had just come out. And so everybody who I met on this trip, I'd say to them, I'm living similarly to this. And so whatever they would tell me to do, I would just have to do it. Because I used to have like five panic attacks a day. And my thinking was, if leaving the house is scary, if everything is scary, then nothing is scary, right? I was doing this little trip of Ireland with a bunch of Australians and we were just sitting yarning one night and I'm just spinning some stories, you know, true stories about my life, just really what an embarrassment I am. <laughs> and one of them just said, boy, Steph, you got to do stand-up. And I was like, no, I literally can't think of anything worse. And she was like, I reckon you'd be good at it. You should do it. And so I was like, all right, but I can't think about it too much. we got to do it now. And so we prepped for an hour and a half. And by prepped, I mean drank. And then, <laughs> and then, yeah, we just rocked up at this random pub in Dublin and I just walked in and I was like, excuse me, do you do open mic comedy? And the guy was like, no. I was like, do you have a microphone? He's like, no, why are you asking? And I just like stood up on a little corner stool kind of thing and just started talking. Do you remember your first jokes or what you said? Yeah, I told jokes about my dad and I told jokes about blue bottles on the sand. The jellyfish. Yeah. I had this whole thing about golden showers, Australians loving golden showers <laughs> <laughs> because we have crafted ways to, to constantly need to pee on each other in public. Like it was really stupid and I just came up with it on the spot. I've never said it ever again. <laughs> For obvious reasons. Until now. Until now. <laughs> but mostly it was about my dad because my dad's this neighbourhood vigilante, we call it. Like, my dad's this really gentle man. Like, everybody who meets him goes, I think your dad might be the nicest person I've ever met. And I'm like, yeah, he's so beautiful. But also, don't break the law because he will punch you. Just, I'm not even kidding. Like, this was the story that I told because this is true. We had this really long driveway and there was a big street lamp at the bottom of it, right? And Dad, because he's obsessed with ABC. Oh, Dad. I know, right? And he had forever been umming and ahhing about global warming. This was like back in 2007, I reckon. And then he heard a story about it on ABC and he went, well, I'm on. I'm in. <laughs> it's the ABC. And so he built these giant sandwich boards to put at the bottom of our driveway that on one side said, global warming and on the other side said act now but I used to get the bus from just near my house and I was like dad we can't be that house and then one day he heard some rascals attacking his signs and he had punched the rascals before because they used to put pipe bombs in the pipes down the street and steal all the mailboxes. Anyway, you know, in the dark, how do you know it's a 15 year old? <laughs> he heard these signs being smashed up he didn't want to hit him, so instead he grabbed a machete and just stood under the silhouette of the streetlight to scare the ever-living crap out of them. That sounds terrifying, Steph. Yeah. And my dad laughed and laughed about it, and I was like, don't mess with this man's neighbourhood, you know? <laughs> neighbourhood watch. That's definitely what he was going for. Steph, we've just heard about how it was a pub day. This wasn't your original pathway, comedy. No. 
You had an interest in politics and advocacy and you were initially studying law and journalism. So what was your plan? I'd always grown up with a lot of privilege and I had just seen the pathways for black followers in this country and I was like, this is shocking. And, and the way that I got tokenized really heavily, like for instance, the big thing that started me down that path was when I was at high school, I got offered free tutoring and literally the note just said, we've identified your Indigenous here's some free tutoring. And I was like, no, I'm a straight A student. And that is incredibly disempowering to read something like that. And also I know that the reason why they do that sort of thing is because if they send it out to a middle-class metro area, they're more likely to get results. Whereas those kind of initiatives don't actually go out to remote and regional places, you know, and it just really bugged me. I was like 15 or 16 and I walked down to my principal's office and I was like, do you actually think that this is okay to do? And she was like, kiddo, it's a government initiative. And I was like, yeah, well, there are ways to make initiatives actually work and not compound the issue. In that moment, I went, how am I getting this more than this 50-year-old woman who runs a school? I just have found myself being in a lot of arguments with people where it was always seen as like the way to keep the peace was to continue to let people say either overtly racist things or accidentally racist things to me. And I just was like, this isn't okay. I need to be able to get some kind of legitimacy to speak and have people listen. And that's all that I knew that I wanted to do was get into a space where I went, I have this massive amount of privilege where I still get the experiences of being an Aboriginal woman. I have faced racism. I've seen disadvantage. I've seen the huge gap in what it looks like to have that privilege and not have that privilege. And it felt like if I don't use that responsibility to make a difference, then what am I doing? Yeah, and it sounds like that fire inside you is what led you to study journalism and law. But obviously at some point you got disillusioned with that pathway and you stepped back. What was it exactly that made you pause? I had one lecture and it was in a subject called Law and Society. We were looking at how specific the wording in legal documentation needed to be. And it was the most frustrating thing I have ever been a part of because as much as I found it interesting, I also went, oh, law isn't about justice. This is shocking. So it started with our lecturer telling us a story about how if you're not exact with your wording, people can get off, right? And so what he said was there was a case where in the code it used to be if you're caught speeding between zero and 12 kilometres over the speed limit, the fine is blah, blah, blah. And then it was like over 12 kilometres, the fine is blah, blah, blah. And somebody was caught doing exactly 12 kilometres over an hour and there was no written fine for that. So he got this loophole and wasn't fined. It was this whole thing. And I went, that's so crap. So then our entire lesson was about finding loopholes. And I was like, oh, my God, I never, ever want to work in this place where this is considered being good at your job. You seem to be motivated by a sense of social justice. How Mm. powerful is it then to advocate through humour? How is humour more freeing, perhaps, when it comes to advocacy? Do you know what I think it is about humour? Like, laughing is about shifting perspective, right? Even if you look at all of the different types of humour that there are, they all come down to a shift in perspective. And what a great place to be educated from because you have to shift perspective. And, you know, I've heard a quote which was, comedy is just tragedy plus time. And it's true. It's like you can laugh at really hard stuff if you do it from a ridiculous perspective. If I can just switch people's brains to make them see something as really funny or really silly, but also from a perspective where they're no longer the top dog or whatever, so they have to kind of get some level of empathy in that, then that would be so powerful. And because I accidentally from that pub dare had found out that I was not bad at doing that, I was like, well, this is a really cool way to mix all of those things that I care about. I'd always been a pretty funny person and always really cared and been driven by this passion. So, yeah. You're talking also about how comedy to you is a form of advocacy and protest. There's a huge, obviously, tradition of comedians who use 
comedy to speak truth to power. Who are some of the comedians who you look to as inspiration or as examples that do that well? Do you know, it's actually really weird because I don't really watch comedians. I don't like to watch super famous people who are good and polished, even though I know that I have to be polished. I don't like to see polish because I want to feel the authenticity or whatever. But there's a comedian that I really like at the moment called Sean Smith or Smith. I don't know how it's pronounced, but she does a lot of really raw, authentic, painful comedy. It can be really quite polarising to an audience because it can make you feel uncomfortable. But if you relate to it, it is the most empowering and powerful comedy. I just always felt like that. There was like things that people could say on stage that would make me view the world differently, especially if they were just different than I was. Like if they were a different ethnicity or a different gender even. Steph, let's pivot to pop culture now here on Stop Everything. We love to hear what you've been watching, listening to right now. And we heard you're really into true crime podcasts, including Serial. What are you listening to right now? I've been doing my YouTube deep diving recently. I watched a documentary on US propaganda. (laughs) I'm so strange. I've been listening to Bailey Serian. She tells true crime stories while she does her makeup. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, I've heard of that. And it's like quite detailed makeup. Amazing. And she has a podcast that I listen to as well. I constantly fall down different rabbit holes. So it's really hard to say what I'm listening to. Oh, Right now I'm watching House. Don't know why. The Hugh Laurie TV show from 2004 to 2012. What is it about watching House 15 to 10 years after the fact (laughs) that is really floating your boat right now, Steph Tisdall? I have no idea. Last week it was all of the Iron Chefs (laughs) and everything to do with cooking and Heston. And then I randomly Googled Monsterio Delicio, Can You Eat the Fruit? And then watched like a week's worth of tropical fruit videos? I know the answer is yes. You just have to treat it correctly, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then this week, house. So there is no rhyme or reason. It just, oh no, I remember why. My dad has a disease that was on house. (laughs) And I was telling somebody that story. I was like, this is how rare it is. It was on house. I love this peek inside the mind of Steph (laughs) Tisdall. True crime and makeup, house, YouTube shorts, Monsteria Delicioso. The fruit salad plant is what they call it, right? Yeah. You cannot eat it raw. Go online and check out how you can do it. We're not giving any food or health advice here and Stop Everything. We will not be held liable. We will not be sued. Okay, that's our disclaimer. Does any of this feed into your comedy material at all? What, Monsteria Delicioso? All the stuff you're putting into your brain, Steph Tisdall. Yes. A hundred percent. I went through a writer's block a little while ago and I listened to a podcast about creativity and it said people think that creativity is a brainwave, just a thing that happens like motivation. No, you have to work at creativity. And so what this podcast suggested was if you can't write for whatever reason, you have to set yourself a work day where you force yourself to consume things that you wouldn't usually consume that spark curiosity and creativity in you. And so whenever I hit a moment where I'm like, I'm not sure what to talk about, what to do, I'll watch an educational animal video or I'll watch something that really is intriguing to me that I wouldn't usually watch. So I love stuff on UFOs, stuff like that every now and then always sparks this new way of thinking in my head. (laughs) I've got this thing on my little to watch list a beginner's guide to quantum physics. Like I just (laughs) love these like things that expand my brain and then it just makes you think about so many weird things but also just trains your brain to think in a different way. I love this philosophy, especially because we often hear about how people can't debate anymore or how they're not willing to kind of embrace new ideas or Mm. delve into new things. Steph, you're a proud Yudinji woman, and I was wondering how much of the traditional First Nations storytelling influences your approach to your mm. comedy? I would say that the biggest way that it trickles into my comedy is just that we're loud. I just laugh a lot. Like, I laugh 
so much. I'm like both the most serious person you'll ever meet and the least serious person you'll ever meet. I laugh until I cry, you know, and there's just that kind of taking things to that next level, that real kind of telling a story in that really excited, like you're, you're telling your mates kind of, you're telling your family it's a yarn and everybody knows the story. Like that's how I like to write my comedy as though we're already mates and we're already going through the story together. But I didn't have as much time with my people, you know, so it's just spirit, like it's spirit. My spirit knows that and has that heart and my mum's like that. But it's not this really sort of community-based kind of storytelling. It's in my blood, it's in my heart, it comes from my mum and then, you know, my memories of being around family and just cracking up laughing and laughing at tragedy. Oh, just finding a way to make the saddest thing the funniest thing, like that is the epitome of what Blackfella humour is and storytelling. Yeah, mining that darkness for humour mm-hmm. is, I think, something that we see a lot in humour. Steph Tisdale, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for talking to Stop Everything. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Steph Tisdale is an actor and comedian, and you can see her on the 10th series of Spicks and Specs, which is available on iView now. So do you sometimes ever go to a comedy gig and wonder, is this theater, stand-up, or have I mixed up my prescriptions? Because that's what crossed my mind when I watched Zoe Coombs-Marr perform Dave the Opener at the 2022 Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Benjamin Law, you are familiar with the oeuvre of Dave. The oeuvre, the back catalogue of Dave. Dave, if you are familiar with stand-up comedy, in Australia, has a very, very special spot in the pantheon of comic personalities. Zoe Kunzmar's Dave is like an amalgam, a hot mess of all the kind of mediocre white male comedians you've ever seen as interpreted by the genius lesbian comedy of Zoe Kunzmar. And he, as a character, lives rent-free in my mind as the star of my sexual nightmares. He lives rent-free in Zoe Kunzmar's mind as well, apparently, and the genes and the graphic tea that conjure him to life are really such a core part of representing the Daves of the world. (laughs) Dave has been resurrected. He rose like a messiah, and we spoke to Dave's alter ego, Zoe Coombsmar, last year. Zoe is a 2016 winner of the festival's Most Outstanding Show Award. And so when we got to chat with Zoe, a.k.a. Dave, we had to ask about the stunt she pulled with comedian Reese Nicholson ahead of the same-sex marriage postal vote. So we got married and then I won the award, which at the time was called The Barry, but is no longer called The Barry after Barry Humphreys. Problematic title. Sorry, I just dead named the award. But (laughs) I won it the night after we got married on the same stage. The year after Hannah Gadsby won it and then Geraldine Hickey won it last year, Reese won it this year. I'm just saying, you know, I opened a lot of doors for a lot of queers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yet it wasn't until after your heterosexual affirmation. Yes, absolutely. Traditional marriage mm-hmm. that really pushed you over the line. <laughs> Let's talk about the current show that you've been touring all around the country, Dave the Opener, which congratulations, it's a tour de force. It's an incredible show, Zoe. After a hiatus of six years, you resurrected your Dave for a new comedy show. There are so many Daves in comedy. Can you describe your Dave? My Dave is pretty much exactly what you think he is. If someone was to say, oh, hey, I'm going to the pub. There's a comedian on. His name's Dave. It's that guy. That's Dave. He's just the most standard sort of aggressively mediocre hack male comic who's just trying to do relatable gear. He wears a really disgusting graphic T-shirt and a blazer because, you know, He's performing, so he wears a blazer over his T-shirt. He's a kind of an archetype of the hackiest kind of most, you know, standard male comic. And this resurrection of Dave kind of coincided with you recently contracting COVID. What I find interesting about this is that Dave at his best, because between Beverly and I, we've 
I think, seen the collected works of Dave now. He has a back catalogue. <laughs> Dave can sometimes seem a little bit ill on stage anyway. So was there kind of a synchronicity happening here between the performer getting COVID and Dave being brought back to life? Yeah, look, I mean, I had booked it in before I got COVID. So he was sort of rumbling to the surface, but it was a really interesting process writing and finishing up this show while on COVID because I had it the week before the comedy festival started. And also because of you know, the pandemic. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it sort of changed the way that all the festivals work. So normally, and this is across the board, comedians would have done a few runs before we get to the comedy festival. But this year, everything was much newer. So this was a really brand new show. And I was in the COVID brain fog of trying to make Dave, which He's often ill on stage. He's not quite functioning. And then he tends to fall into like meta time slips and things. So from COVID, my brain was barely functioning. Like what a confusing fog to be in. But I guess we got there in the end. As someone who did watch the show, the illness came through in a different way, but in a dramatic sense. We mentioned there's a lot of Daves in comedy. And when you described graphic tea in a blazer, I just actually, through my mind, shot through so many Daves, Australian and otherwise, who could be that person. Your Dave in Dave the Opener has awoken from a coma, right? And it's 2022. He doesn't know what's happened since 2016. But he does end up taking on a pretty big Dave in comedy, Dave Chappelle, and in particular, his Netflix comedy special, The Closer. The Closer is infamous, I guess, because of its transphobic jokes. So before we get into Dave's take on the special, what is your take on the special? My take on the special is, firstly, it's not a great special. As far as comedy goes, it's like not great. It's not particularly funny. It's not particularly well written. It's just, I think... It's a really interesting one because it's obviously like Dave Chappelle is like, I have stuff to say. And he's always had really interesting things to say often, you know, but then I feel like he's just sort of fascinated with and obsessed with the queer community and particularly miffed that people have said, oh, well, you can't say that. So there's obviously really transphobic stuff in there. There's some really horrible stuff. There's some quite racist stuff. Like there's some lame-o, like, COVID Chinese jokes, which yeah. is just, it just feels very sort of amateur in its approach because he's from the get-go, he's trying to be controversial and that's fine. But it's sort of in doing that, it really does pull down like all these, you know, vulnerable people, trans people, etc. And it's, that's sort of not okay. But as a comedian looking at it, I'm like, Really what we're seeing is someone having a tantrum about the fact that someone has said they can't say anything. So I don't think he actually does have anything interesting to say. What he's saying is don't tell me what to say, which is also ultimately a very boring thing to say because it's not saying anything. (laughs) So that's your response as a viewer of this Netflix comedy special, The Closer by Dave Chappelle. At what point did you think as a performer, as a comedian, hmm, this might actually be a job for my Dave, (laughs) your special Dave, to actually respond to this other Dave, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. So it actually came to a head because I was having dinner with my ex-husband, Reese Nicholson, and some other friends in comedy. And we were sort of talking about stuff. We were talking about The Closer. There was all these conversations going on about The Closer at the time. Someone was like, oh, yeah, what do you reckon Dave would have to say about that? And I was like, oh, well, I mean, Dave's been in a coma since 2016, which is struck me as a funny idea. And then I was like, but probably the only thing he's seen is the closer. And then as soon as I thought of that, I was like, that's a really absurd sort of approach. It felt like it was sort of time to bring Dave back. There's all these conversations that happen about cancel culture. And while there's lots of nuanced and interesting stuff to say about all of the above, what often ends up happening is this conversation about nothing. And it's ill-informed guys being mad that someone's telling them what to say or not and they're sort of stuck in this tailspin of introspection about their own comedy which is sort of what Dave is really that he's this kind of really ill-informed but he's got hot takes and I thought the way to make him even more ill-informed is oh he's been in a coma since 2016 which is sometimes what it feels like when Dave Chappelle is talking about trans people you're like 
dude, have you just come out of a coma? Like, what are you talking <laughs> about? He's got a dictionary definition of feminism in his Netflix special. Like, dude, it's not year nine. We're, this is not the Estedford. What are you doing? You got paid $20 million for this? Come on, be better. <laughs> so when you're conjuring your Dave, is it like he's just under the surface for you, Zoe? Was he there in a coma inside you? Oh, he is shockingly easy to access. <laughs> <laughs> What did it take to, like, resurrect Day from his coma, wake him up? It was literally opening a smelly bag of clothes that I (laughs) was like... Yeah, I can do this again. Did you still have the Dave jeans from 2016? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And (laughs) I'll do you one better. I had not washed them. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. How involved is the backstory or the Dave cinematic universe, so to speak? (laughs) Like, for instance, does Dave have a last name, for instance? No, Dave doesn't have a last name. He doesn't have a... Like Cher or Madonna. Yeah, I suppose everything that's ever happened to Dave has happened on stage in the shows that I've done with Dave. Actually, in the last show, he discovered that he was, in fact, a character being played by a lesbian comedian named Zoe Koomsma. So that's sort of canon now. But in that, part of the reason he discovered it was he was like, yeah, I've like, I'm a real person. I've got like a family and a last name. I'm Dave. And he realizes he doesn't have a last name. He has no backstory. Uh, so yeah, so Dave is this kind of like, you know, he's a very fun and silly character to do. He's a really crap comic, but he's kind of like trying really hard and that's so fun and funny. And in the meantime, going like, what's going on with cancel culture and trans people? But also, is are you guys still listening to Gangnam Style? Like, <laughs> what's, what happened with the ice bucket challenge? Like, <laughs> it really is a time capsule. Yeah. At his heart, Dave is an incredibly political character, but he's also a very fun and silly character. So accessing that is always like a lot of fun. And what do you think is the difference between Dave taking on cancel culture and Zoe as Zoe doing it? I suppose Dave provides this real clowny access point where we can kind of laugh at the absurdities and have a bit more fun with it. Whereas as myself, you know, my job first and foremost is I'm a comedian. So I want to make people laugh and I want to make people sort of feel good. Secondary to that is I want people to think and to take something away or whatever. As myself, it's like I'm a lesbian telling you, let's talk about the Me Too movement. Like that is just, it's too on the nose, isn't it? So if I'm wearing a silly costume and, you know, vomiting and, you know, wearing clown pants or something, then maybe (laughs) we can talk about it, but we can still kind of have fun. So Dave is part of your toolkit, essentially, and the conditions what have to be just so in order for... Dave to emerge out of the stormwater drain (laughs) to terrorise audiences again? Yeah, I guess so. The last time I did Dave was in 2016 and it felt like I'd sort of said everything I wanted to say with Dave and a lot has changed since then. So it felt like Dave is like a hack character, right? And so it felt at the time to do another Dave show then would have been a hack move. You know, it felt like I did need to sort of step out of that box and speak with my own voice. And that's been great and I will continue to do that. Now it felt like it was the right time. Enough of those conversations were happening. Enough had sort of changed but the conversations were coming back to this like cancel culture and and why is Dave Chappelle talking about trans people in his Netflix special? You know, like what actually is going on? Meanwhile, proper like political things are happening where we're seeing like the huge threats to trans people and actual laws being changed and shifted and we actually are losing some ground or in danger of losing a lot of ground that have been fought for for queer rights and women's rights and all these areas. So it's like the fight's not over, but it seems like the conversation is stuck in this like what is a comedian allowed to say place? And it's just like, please, maybe if I just exploded a little bit with Dave, that might be a step towards moving on. Let's hope Dave won't come back in like 2028 and be like, hey, cancel culture. (laughs) He totally will. (laughs) (laughs) In Dave the Opener, you really set it up as a story and it's really meta sometimes. You play with time. When I was watching, I thought this really goes beyond just straight stand-up. And it makes me curious, like for you, where is the line between, say, comedy and theatre? Is there a boundary area? How do you think about that? 
I don't think there is a hard and fast line. Comedians don't like to admit this, but comedy is theatre. It's just got sort of different rules and the audience has different expectations. So for me, it's all about the context. It's like, what is the audience walking in expecting? So when you build something as a comedy show, it has to be funny. That's its first job. It has to be funny because that's what people are walking in with. In terms of what you then do on stage, I think it's just a matter of like, what is at your disposal? You know, if you're working towards those expectations of what the audience wants and subverting them and having fun with that and making them laugh, it's comedy. Stand-up is a particular form and I do that as Dave and as myself and all those sorts of things. But for me, I think everything is up for grabs. I think as soon as he's trying to put things in boxes and be like, no, that's stand-up and that's theatre and this is some sort of pure... What is the point of being like a stand-up purist? Just make people laugh. So... The lines between theatre and comedy are blurred. The aim is to make people laugh. There's another element going on here as well, which is clowning. Now, maybe in my mind, the lines between you and Dave are blurred, but I think it's part of the Dave cinematic universe that he went to a French clown school. Yeah, he went to Gollier. I didn't go to Gollier. Okay. But Dave did. And where does the clowning realm enter all of this? And how do you use your body to make Dave the kind of clown or anti-clown that he is. I'm just imagining what it's like. (gasps) Hello, dear listener. I'm sorry that this is so psychotic as a concept. (laughs) Dave is a parody, right? So he's first and foremost is like a parody of bad comedy and, and trends as well. So when I was doing Dave, there was this real trend of a lot of comedians going to clown school, which is fine then taking it really seriously, which is hilarious because there's nothing funnier than people taking something too seriously unless, of course, that thing is clown school in which it's the funniest (laughs) thing in the world. So I kind of thought it would be funny for Dave as this like club comic to have gone to clown school and taken it really seriously and had a really hard time. So, And that was also because there was like this whole cohort of like clowning kind of happening. So Dave already is kind of a clowny physical character. Like my body changes when I have to do Dave because he takes a certain type of fitness because I have to like move my body in a weird way and like sort of slouch across the stage and I walk a lot and then Dave is always dancing and falling over and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, he's like fundamentally a physical slapstick character that's a parody of a bad stand-up while also doing stand-up. It's very meta. Yeah. Yeah, it's very meta. But and, and again, it's always just it's in aim of like, let's talk about some interesting stuff. Let's see what we can do theatrically, but also it's just how do we be as funny as possible with this character? He's a he's a vehicle for comedy, he's just gags. He's a legend, the legend of Dave. When it comes to cancel culture, I'm curious, like, is there a day you think where we can look forward? to not talking about cancel culture, its existence or its lack of existence. And when is that day? What is your hope? How will it arrive at that day? My answer is no, there will be no day where we are not talking about it. It will just morph and change. They'll just give it a new name because we have been talking about it forever, especially in relation to comedy. That's the thing that I find quite funny And also why I was like, well, making Dave be in a coma speaks to that because in the 80s and 90s, it was like political correctness. And before that, you know, it was like, if you look back, Lenny Bruce was talking about like what you can say and what you can't say and getting in trouble for certain things. It's kind of like scandal and what do you say and walking the line that Every time someone has the conversation about like cancel culture, thinking that they're having some sort of new revelation, it's like, yeah, we've been talking about this for hundreds of years. Look at Carnival. Carnival is about like what you can't say. And it's like that's medieval, man. <laughs> and that's, that's <laughs> comedy's job is to push those lines as well. But it does have a social responsibility as well. It's not a new conversation. It's a conversation that will keep happening. It will just happen about different things because comedy goes like, can I say this? And then people react and they either go, oh, yeah, it feels good when you cross that line or that's actually really harmful. And then it's, it's actually the comedian's job to ride that and go, oh, okay, how close can I get to the line without actually crossing it? I mean, that's what I think. Mm. And it's Dave's job to come out of a coma and entertain and probe his audience. Is this Dave's 
final outing or is he going back into a coma after this show? And if we can expect Dave to come back, should we be grateful or appalled that he is somehow always eternally relevant? I think those are the questions that the show asks a little bit. And at the end, it's like, maybe he goes back into the coma. Maybe we both inhabit the space together and maybe there's room for both of us. Maybe there's not. This show is really a tussle between me and Dave a bit. So what happens next? I'm really not sure. I don't know. I never planned to do another Dave show. Well, Zoe, just in case, hang on to those jeans. Oh, I will. Back in the bag. (laughs) Zoe Coombsmore, thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's award-winning comedian Zoe Coombs-Marr. Her comedy special called Bossy Bottom is available to watch on iview. I'm a feminist, but just before the show, Cal said, let's all go backstage and put our makeup on. And I said, my makeup is on. (laughs) And Celia Bacola was there and she said, oh, no, you look fresh, like you've come out of a dojo or a gazebo. (laughs) And I went backstage and put on lots more makeup. That's comedian Deborah Francis-White in a segment from the Guilty Feminist podcast, a cultural phenomenon that she created five years ago. Since then, it's clocked over 95 million downloads and counting. And prior to the pandemic, that podcast had Deborah on an endless tour performing live shows around the UK and the world. Talia Alatia and I spoke to Deborah Francis-White last year ahead of her Australia tour. And we asked her about the confessional segment of her shows that kicks off the podcast where she and her guests share an I'm a feminist, but statement. And I wondered what had been the most memorable, surprising or shocking lines that guests have come up with. Oh, one of my favourites is Cal Wilson saying, I'm wearing a statement necklace and the statement is, don't look at my neck. (laughs) 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 But the most shocking one I think ever was Sarah Pascoe going, I'm a feminist, but I would sell the Spice Girls to Boko Haram to get on Dancing with the Stars. Oh, okay. That is a lot to process and unpack right there. I mean, she's deliberately crossing a line there. She's just basically saying she desperately wants to do Dancing with the Stars, which in Britain we call strictly gun dancing for some unknown reason. I'm basically like a Catholic confessional, but for feminists. Mm, so much hangs in that butt. Listening to the episodes, I'm like, oh, what are they going to say? Is it going to be spicy? When you get people to state that, because that's what every episode starts with, I'm a feminist, but dot, dot, dot. What are you asking them to reveal about themselves? It's the gap between our actions and our values. That's where the butt lies. So the thesis of the podcast is, this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast about our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. And the thing is, what I feel is whenever we do anything, we have a noble reason and an ignoble reason. So there's the good side of us and there's the not so good side of us. One thing is, for example, I know a lot of people that have gone to refugee camps and volunteered. It's a hard thing to do, you know, and you're giving up a lot to do it. So the noble side of you actually wants to go and help and make a difference in the world. But if you will not acknowledge the ignoble side of you, just the little piece of you that is enjoying that people think you're doing something good, that's enjoying the feeling of, I'm spending my life in a really meaningful way here, and that maybe even sometimes I see young people to whom not much has happened go and do things like that and enjoy the drama of it. But the thing is, for the people that are stuck in that refugee camp, there's no joy in that drama because their whole life has been turned upside down and it's just persecution on top of terror. That's the ignoble side of you. What I have noticed is if you refuse to look at that ignoble side, some people deny it. Some people are like, no, I'm just doing this for the right reasons. I notice that ignoble side starts to grow if it is ignored. All human beings have foibles. All human beings have hypocrisies. But if you will not look at it, it thrives when you ignore it. So acknowledge sometimes I have a piece of me that likes it when people admire what I'm doing. And go, that's okay, that's human. But I don't want that piece to be bigger than it is. And so I'll look at it and I'll keep this piece, which is, 
hey, I'm not here for me. I'm not here to center myself in this story and to post it in Instagram pictures of me with windswept hair looking into the middle distance saying, here I am on the savannah, devastated about the environment. But really, I think, oh God, I look really hot on this selfie. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, when people yeah. post about mental health, but in a glamorous bikini while looking out on the beach, there's nothing wrong with posting a selfie. There's nothing wrong with liking the way you look. What's wrong with that? And it's great to post about mental health issues. But I think when you put up a beautiful photo of yourself, instead of going, thought this was cute or loving my hair today, don't mind if I do. And then put another post up about mental health issues, if that's how you really feel. But if you refuse to look at that side of yourself, you end up becoming a parody of yourself and you end up using other people's trauma or the world's problem catastrophes as somehow a vanity piece. And that's when I think things get, this is just an example. I've never talked about this ever before on in public or on air. I don't know why you've got this out of me. I think it's because it's 1130 at night here and <laughs> I've had a very long day and I'm quite it's tired. It's a safe space, Deborah. What do you want to tell us? It's national radio. It's not a safe space. <laughs> at the same time, you are also talking to a gay man in the modern world and it almost feels like when I go on Instagram sometimes that my people have pioneered the art of shredded selfies for social justice. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I'm a feminist, but is such a fun way and a delicious kind of lure to start an event and a podcast and Guilty Feminist is both of those things. Another fun segment of The Guilty Feminist is small acts of feminism. What do you hope to achieve by highlighting these acts that sometimes, well, arguably even often, should be the bare minimum? Guilty Feminist is always a live show. I didn't want to be just sort of sitting around with other comedians in a studio going, <laughs> you're making me laugh, you're hilarious. I was only really interested in doing it front of an audience and getting that feedback and also communing together about trying to get better at this stuff. And I think it was one of the very first podcasts where instead of me saying, I'm an expert, this was, I'm not sure I'm good enough at this feminism thing. And I've got a big opportunity here is because this resurgence of feminism and activism was happening end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And so I was like, I'd like to get better at this. Does anyone want to learn with me? During lockdown, we had to do it on Zoom. I couldn't wait to get back out. And so the first show in London, I just said, has anyone done anything feminist and did a bit of crowd work? And the first person to put her hand up was a woman called Jamie Klingler, who done this with a group of activists called Reclaim These Streets, said, yes, I've just taken the Met Police to court because they stopped us having a vigil for Sarah Everett. And I don't know if you heard about Sarah Everett. It was a terrible thing that happened. And she was killed by a police officer. And then the police stopped us having a vigil. And she said, I've raised £250,000 in order to take the Met Police to court. And we won. And that will then set precedent in law that they cannot just stop us protesting. Well, that doesn't seem like a small act. No, well, I didn't ask for a small act. I just said, said he wants anything feminist. Everyone cheered. And then I went, anyone else? And everyone just looked at the floor and went, no, I haven't done a thing with my life. And I was like, okay, so Jamie, well done on that huge insurmountable act of feminism, but it's put everyone else off. <laughs> no one wants to say anything now. Everyone's like, I've never done a good thing in my life. So I then said, has anyone got an unintimidating act of feminism that's going to make us all feel better so we can go, oh, I could do better than that. So now it's a bit that I do at the top of the show on tour, wherever I go around the UK, I'll go, has anyone got an unintimidating Something that is going to make everyone go, I can do better than that. And so we start small and then we can build up. When it comes to feminism, is that a part of something that you want, especially women who sometimes go, I can't say anything unless it's perfect, to allow them to go, that is still all right and what you are doing is still all right? Why is there that emphasis on just being okay to just be yourself and see what happens? Look, honestly, I think women are encouraged to feel guilty. Like if you're a mother and you're at work, you should be at home with your children. If you're at home with your children, you're like, oh, not doing enough at work. If you're doing well at both of those, are you being a good enough daughter, mother, friend? Oh, well, your neighbor's doing the triathlon for a charity. Are you doing that? And then are you doing enough self-care? Are doing enough self-care? Are you loving your body enough? Have you loved your body this morning? You know, it's the lot. We're just so constantly bombarded with things to feel guilty about. I don't think all human beings are, but there is definitely an extra layer of that for women. And women are judged more harshly in the media. You know, if you're not well-dressed enough or you're overdressed or you're showing too much or you're not showing enough, there's always something. And I just felt like feminism had become another thing to feel guilty about. Like it was sort of like, no, you're not doing this well enough. 
And it's like the whole point of feminism is to empower us, not to make us feel ashamed. So I think by me going, well, I'm not always getting this right. And my thoughts don't always meet my value set or my actions don't always meet my value set. So one of the first things I ever confessed was, this is true, I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march. I popped into a department store to use the loo. I got distracted trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. (laughs) (laughs) I remember just putting my sunglasses on, putting my sign in a bin and just scurrying away because I was like, I I mean, they're going to know. Like I've come out with John Lewis with a bag. One time I got on a light aircraft from Cape Cod to Boston and the pilot asked me in front of everyone how much I weighed so he could determine how much fuel to put in the plane to get us there safely. But he just like asked me in front of it, like six people in the plane. And I just panicked and I just lied by 20 pounds, <laughs> endangering my life, the life of the other passengers and a border collie that was along for the ride. And as we were over the water, you know, those little tiny plays get very shaky. And I whispered in the ear of my best gay friend, David, who did that journey all the time. And I said, David, David, I've lied. That is getting shaky. And he said, oh, don't worry, darling. They put on 10 pounds for women and gay men. <laughs> <laughs> they know. I was like, well, we better hope someone else hasn't lied because I've lied by 20. I would be happy to die for that lie. That's how much of an ally I am, people. <laughs> I mean, they can see what I look like. Like, why am I making up a magic number? Like, it's ridiculous. But these are all things that have been ingrained in us since we were children about our worth and what we should and shouldn't look like and what we should and shouldn't weigh. And I mean, we know that's all ludicrous, but it's still coded in us. So the more we can put it on the table and laugh about it, I think the more likely we are to release the shame because guilt carried in the body is, turns into shame and shame is luggage and then you're carrying it around. And the problem with that is if you don't release it, if you don't laugh at it and go, well, it's ludicrous, but it doesn't matter. If you don't, if you carry it, then you are less likely to fight for your rights, to take your entitlements, to fight for other women. Tell us more about that because it's the Guilty Feminist podcast and feminism manifests in different ways. There are different subsections of feminism. In order to make it a truly embracing, diverse, inclusive space. I mean, it makes me think about how the UK, like so many other parts of the world, there is a growing kind of branch of trans-exclusionary radical feminism. And already I've heard you use very trans-inclusive language in our conversation right now. How important is it to you to make the guilty feminist kind of an all-embracing space? And how do you go about that? I think early on, sometimes I got complaints that I was saying something that didn't sound trans-inclusive. And at first I was like, oh, you can't do it every time. You know, like I didn't quite get it. And sometimes people write it and they're quite direct or even vitriolic at times. And you think, all right, I'm not trying. But I started to realize that when people said they felt left out in a quite passionate way, it was a compliment. Because what they were really saying is, I've been listening every week feeling like I'm part of the family. And then one week you said something that made me feel like I wasn't included. And the way you can say to your family, well, what do you mean you all met up on Sunday afternoon? And you you didn't let me know. Oh, we thought you were doing such and such. Well, at least send me a text. Am I not part of this family? Whereas if people you didn't really, you know, didn't feel safe, you didn't feel like you belonged and you found out they all met up without you, you'd just be secretly hurt and you wouldn't say anything to them. Because you'd think, oh, well, I'm not entitled. So I took that as a compliment. I was like, okay, this means you do feel safe here and you do feel like this is your family. And when it really hit home for me, that it was really important. I was in Melbourne and I think we were doing a show at the Malt House. And I remember coming in to the space an hour before the show was going to start or something. And this very handsome young man came up to me and he was quite nervous. And he was like, I just want to say thank you so much for this space that you're creating because it's really amazing and I thought I was just so nervous for such a handsome young man and I was like oh that's really lovely to hear and you know and then he said um it's just that there's very few places trans people are really included and I just feel really safe here and I don't really feel very safe anywhere and I just don't feel he said it wasn't until he said that that I realized he was trans because at first I just thought oh he's very nervous and I realized that what he was saying is I don't feel safe on the night bus going home I don't feel safe in the car park I don't feel safe at comedy clubs because I'm going to go to a comedy club and I'll be laughing along. And isn't it funny when you get on the train and then the door shut and blah, 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 observation, observation, observation. And then suddenly there's going to be a joke about people like me and everyone around me is going to laugh in a really visible fashion. And I'm suddenly going to feel very small and in danger of violence. Like I'm going to feel like this is structural violence. I think this is sometimes what comedians don't understand. 
something can be structurally violent in a way that reminds that person that life can be physically violent. And he was like, we did three shows that week in the Malt House and he was in the front row of every show. And because he felt safe and I went, never again, ever again, will I feel a moment's resentment of someone telling me, hey, that language, that turn of phrase, because I'm still always going to be learning. Like I learned, instead of saying women and non-binary people to say women and people of minority genders or women and people of marginalized genders is more inclusive. I'd rather someone tell me that because I don't ever want that young man because I saw the look in his eye and what it meant to him, how valuable it was for him to have a space where he felt not isolated, surrounded by people and like nothing bad was going to happen to him for the duration of the time that he was there. Like that's a space worth creating. You know, there is this pushback around gender non-conforming people. And I'm like, but surely we all know anecdotally, if I get on a late night bus, I might get, you know, some drunk guys who might shout out, oh, I love, and try and bait me or sexualize me or, you know, in some way or another, they're trying to get a reaction. And that might make me feel a bit unsafe and a bit like, where am I going to get off? Are they going to follow me? We've all experienced that. And Benjamin, you will know as a gay man, you can feel that fear of is something homophobic going to happen something can go very quickly from jokes that might be at the first being presented as good natured then tips over into jeering that tips over into sneering that tips over into a push into a shove that tips over into something violent anecdotally surely we know that if a trans woman who is visibly trans gets on that same bus as me that immediately there's going to be giggling there's going to be nudging possibly misgendering and quite, again, structurally violent language used and how quickly that can turn into someone getting off that bus and following her and hurting her. Now, I'm scared coming home sometimes in London. Yeah, you're just looking over your shoulder. I'm just just alert. Mm. Most women are on and probably gay men are on low level Mm. alert all the time. You just know that that's escalated if you're visibly trans, if you're genderqueer. Of course it is because we know that power structures We know what the history of the world is. And so intersectional feminism has got to be not just saying, oh, well, a Claire Foy and Matt Smith paid the same on the crown. You know, that can't be it. It can't be like, oh, could we get more female billionaires into space? Of course, we do want Claire Foy and Matt Smith to be paid the same on the crown. Of course we do. Because if even at that level, that woman can't get the same as a man, then what's the hope for someone who's doing the same job in a fast food restaurant? But... That can't be where it ends. That can't be the center of it. We've got to be closing gaps in injustice for the most disenfranchised people, for people who are displaced, people who are neurodivergent, for people who are disabled, for people who are genderqueer. We've got to be. Mm. And how does comedy work into that activism? Like It's all very well putting your black square on Instagram, but what are you actually doing to support black artists and black female artists and black female service providers and, you know, what are you actually doing? How many black or brown people do you know? And I'm not talking about going up to black and brown and people of different heritages and saying, be my token brown friend. I'm not saying that. But I am saying if you don't have any friends or you're not engaging with any people from those communities, it can just be performative to say you're an intersectional feminism and post the odd thing. Mm. Well, Deborah Francis-White, thank you for bringing your combination of dancing wonder, resilience, resistance, and joy here to stop everything. It's been an absolute joy. Deborah Francis-White is the host of The Guilty Feminist, a weekly podcast available wherever you get your podcasts, except the ABC Listen app, obviously, where you can get Stop Everything. (laughs) You can find Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app, like I said. The show is produced by Sarah Masherman, and this episode was produced on the lands of the Kulin and Eora Nations and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. Ben Law, I'll catch you next week. See you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.